Hello everyone, this is Dr. Jack Chuang. Today's topic just kind of came up a week ago and I just felt the need to um, put this idea out there more so for myself, but maybe some of you can benefit from it and see where I'm coming from. Uh, it has a lot to do with identity, right? So every podcast that I put out, I try to relate it, given that it's psychology concepts explained, to relate it to psychological concepts that you may have encountered in a psychology course here and there. Well, let's just say I'm going to say goodbye to my nickname that students have given me and I've kind of adopted for 20 plus years, I think, and that is of Dr. C. Now, this may not seem like a big deal. Um, you know, why, why am I talking about that? Who cares? <laughs> but it has to do with, um, it was kind of a domino effect. It, it, well, it started as a small thing, then it became a bigger thing. And I'm going to drop that nickname for myself from now on. So every podcast before this, prior to this, you'll notice that the intro uses Dr. C. I talk and introduce myself and conclude every segment with Dr. C. And you won't hear that going forward until I have another epiphany that this epiphany today was stupid. <laughs> okay. All right. So the question is why? And you may not care at all what I'm talking about right now. That's okay. It will become relevant in about 20 minutes. So is this a sudden onset of political correctness? You know, wanting to use a different name and all that. Um, I, I think this has been in the back of my mind, maybe at an unconscious level here and there. But a couple of events recently made it come up to the surface. But let me go back in time a little bit in terms of where my nickname Dr. C came from. So when I was an adjunct in the state of Texas, part-time instructor, I was a graduate student, and um, I knew that students would have a tough time with my last name, Chuang, and I'll talk about how that's not really the correct pronunciation, but it's the public pronunciation that our family tells people and how we introduce ourselves. But since I was a grad student, I haven't graduated yet with my doctorate. My students just started calling me Mr. C. Some call me Professor C. One student in particular called me PC for Professor C. So Professor C was a little too long, shortened it to PC. At the time, I thought it was kind of cool. You know, I wanted to be likable. My students liked me, you know, and, you know, everybody has nicknames, right? Um, Dr. Phil. Not that he's my hero or anything, but my real hero is Dr. J, the basketball player, Julius Irving. Um, that shows how old I am. And I kept it ever since, and I got my doctor, then Mr. C became Dr. C. It's all over my syllabus, all over my classroom documents, my podcasts, my video lectures. Until a couple weeks ago, a fellow faculty member at the one of the colleges I work for wrote an email to the campus, talked about the importance of a name, of a person's name, any person's name, and how important that is. And in that email, he also shared a TED Talk link 
uh, to a video that I will include in the uh, description as well. And it got me thinking, you know, okay, yeah, that makes sense. You know, the, the professor talked about, the colleague talked about how his name has always been mistaken. People use his last name instead of his first name. You know, why people keep making these mistakes or mispronouncing names, even though, you know, the, he's taught others how to pronounce his name. So how it relates to me today is that last week I decided to, because I'm using Canvas, the app on an iPad, and there's a little button there, so instead of typing feedback to students per the assignment, I could actually record a little audio or video segment to actually talk to my students directly. It's like, hey, you did this well, this could use some work, right? So I did that for their first assignment. I have a lot of classes, so I can't do that every time, but I figure it's a way to connect to students. And then I realized that because I'm doing that individually, I have to pronounce every single student's name, right? Some are what we call easier names, and some are more challenging names to me because they're unfamiliar to me. And I wanted to say it correctly because I know that in my lifetime, especially growing up in Texas, I don't know about especially, but it could be anywhere, you know, my name's been butchered, you know, Chung, Chang, Chuang, you know, Chong, you know, uh, in addition to being made fun of when I was younger. So, and that's another thing I'll talk about later, is that how these, a lot of Asian names have zero meaning when translated to English. It's all phonetic. I'll talk about that later. And so, um, there are some challenging names. So, to be polite, I told my student, if I mispronounce your name, please, please reply either using audio recording or spell it out for me phonetically so I'll know how to pronounce it. And a few people did. Said, oh, you did great. That's exactly how it's pronounced. Or that, oh, this is how it's pronounced. And they spelled it out for me. And then a couple of students, this is what really uh, piqued my interest in today's podcast, is that a couple of students actually said, oh, just use a shortened form of my name because it's easier for people, 80% of the people use that, and I'm okay with it. Or another student said, well, you could pronounce it this way, you're close, but or you can just use initials, abbreviated initials. That's okay, too. And I kept thinking, um, relating it back to the colleague's email, why is that okay? You know, um, are we that lazy as a society to not put in a little bit of effort to try to pronounce someone's name, even if we don't get it, even if we can't roll that R or get that accent down or, you know, put those syllables together. At least we can try, right? But, so that got me, yeah, that, that really gave me thinking about, um, so, so I forwarded that email, I copied and pasted it to my students, those two or three students who came up with nicknames that I can use, and I said, well, you know, you're giving up a little bit of your your roots, your cultural history, your family's, you know, emphasis. I mean, your name is important. Don't just give it up just because, you know, someone else has a little bit of difficulty with it at first. And I thought, you know, I felt good about myself. I was like, yeah, I'm teaching these students something positive, right? Something to think about. I mean, they can continue to use nicknames. It's up to them, but maybe to value their name more and you know hold on to it instead of trying to simplify it for others and then I realized I was being a really big hypocrite because I was looking at my podcast 
and my syllabus and, and even just signing my email, I say, you know, I always write Dr. C. I'm like, oh, crap, I'm actually doing this myself, aren't I? I am not using my full name, really, because it just makes it easier on the people around me. It's not because that's really, you know, it's not really my name. Obviously, my name is not spelled S-E-E, right? And so that got me to thinking about the concept of identity. How do I see myself if I'm willing to abandon giving up showing my name in public? I think part of my excuse for using Dr. C everywhere, especially on a podcast and a YouTube and on Twitter, was to hide my name, you know, to be anonymous or have some anonymity. But in reality, the people who know me know who I am. So and all the other academics out there using their real names uh, in public. So why am I hiding? You know, I'm not running from the law or anything. And so it got me thinking, you know, even my name, Jack, why am I using, even though that's my legal name, my parents, you think about my parents' motivation being first generation immigrants and I was born in Canada you know what was their decision making to use that name for me and to name my sisters you know Americanized or what we call westernized names anglicized names instead of Taiwanese names right and if you know any Asian Americans you know that that's very common amongst Chinese Taiwanese Koreans Japanese that oftentimes the they'll have an anglicized first name like Rose Grace Jimmy you know and then have their middle name, which most people don't hear, is their Chinese name or native name, is their middle name, and then their family name at the end, right? And so I started thinking, you know, my father came to the U.S. and he didn't have an anglicized name. He had to stick with the name on his passport, on his identification. And you know a lot of foreign immigrants coming to the U.S. back in the day through Ellis Island and Angel Island had their names changed because they were difficult to pronounce or understand. So whoever the immigration official was, was would just write down a name. That happened on a lot of birth certificates as well, right? And so being a nation of immigrants, I think oftentimes, you know, the struggle is trying to fit in. So I'm sure that was part of the motivation that my parents had of giving us English names on our birth certificate or Anglo-Saxon names, I'll put it that way, right? So I started thinking, well, would my life be any different if I went by my middle name, right? Would people perceive me as more of a foreigner if I use that name? Like how people see my father, like, you know, he would use his initials. I remember he would talk to his coworkers or you know, white Americans and other races, non-Asians, and they would call him S-Y instead of his name Shu Yuan, right? You know, I'm sure a little practice they could have pronounced it, but he told everybody his name is S-Y, right? And in a way, that's how my name is used, even though it's a legal name. That's what Jack is. It's a substitute for my Taiwanese name, Yongxiang. That's my name, right? And uh, so... In a sense, in this microcosm, is my family's attempt to integrate into the bigger Western culture, right? And therefore, 
we're stripping away part of our Taiwaneseness to fit into this westernized American society. So now if I were born in Taiwan and came here a little bit later, if I grew up in Taiwan, let's say until high school or something, then I definitely wouldn't have an English name at birth. And if I did have an English name, it would probably arrive around third or fourth or fifth grade when kids are learning English as a second language and they all choose English names for themselves, right? And uh, I'm trying to think of, oh, oh no, okay, uh, I'm blanking a little bit, but I remember there was a kid in Taiwan who chose a oh yeah, I remember now, okay. We lived in a small town and one of my friends, their, their family name is Lee, and I asked the son, who was maybe third grade, fourth grade, I said, okay, you know, you're taking English, so what's your English name? Do you have an English name? Well, yeah, my name, English name is Lee. I said, oh, okay, so basically you're Lee Lee, <laughs> right? I don't think he thought that far ahead, but in any case. All right, so that's what happened. That's what happens in Taiwan. And uh, I've seen even my Taiwanese relatives who are not Taiwanese-American, but Taiwanese-Taiwanese living in Taiwan. That was a lot of redundancy there. Um, even on social media, they'll use the names Paul, you know. And his friends in Taiwan will call him Paul. You know, so they would adopt these English nicknames for each other. So, I, I don't know. I felt like it would be a cool experiment if I just started addressing myself as using my middle name instead of my first name. Um, but if you really think about it, you know, the thought is that why would my Taiwanese name be perceived as more of a foreign name than someone with European roots who may be here the same number of generations my, my family has been in the U.S. Let's say if they had a Russian name or Ukrainian name or an Italian name, right, or a British name. Uh, but yet, perhaps because English is our primary language and we have a lot of Anglo-Saxon roots that names that do not fit into that, that conform into that, that model have to be somehow altered to fit in. Um, let me talk about a little bit about these Asian names, especially Taiwanese names. They really get lost in translation when these immigrants come to America. All our names are created phonetically. They all sound alike. You can't tell gender, sex from the names, right? Can you tell which one's feminine, which one's a masculine? Right? My sister, one of my sister's name is Zhuang Hui Qi. This is Zhuang Huizhen, and I'm Zhuang Yongxiang, right? They all sound the same to you, right? If you're not Taiwanese or Chinese speaking. But our names have meaning, pretty cool meaning, actually. So I was wondering, you know, what if people with Chinese names or Taiwanese names would instead, instead of using phonetics to translate their names to English language, but what if we use the meaning? So my family name, Chuang, actually is pronounced differently. In Mandarin, it's Chuang. In Taiwanese, it's Zheng, right? But yeah, okay, Chuang, right? It's sort of arbitrary. It's just because that's how it's spelled. And this name could be spelled in different ways, actually. I think those in mainland China might spell it with a Z instead of a CH. So 
my family name actually means village or a villa or a house. And my actual name, and, and some of you know that with Chinese names and Japanese and Korean names, we actually list our family name first. So I'm not Jack Chuang, but I'm Chuang Jack, actually, in Taiwan. But my Taiwanese name, my, ta my Chinese name is Yong Xiang. Yong means to sing. Xiang means to fly or to soar, right? So my name, if I were to translate it using meaning, would be House of Flight. No, no, no. House of Song and Flight. That's the correct order, right? <laughs> so that's my name right there. Professor House of Flight and Song. And some people even thought, those who know Chinese language, thought my name is kind of feminine, thought it was a female name. But it's a guy name, okay? It can be either or, I guess. But uh, I have friends who have real masculine names, you know, like their family name is Rock, you know, and, and all that. Uh, but to give you an example how a lot of times us with immigrant-sounding names conform to mainstream society and we kind of give up is my friend who passed away a uh, handful of years ago, but one of my best friends, his name is Liren, right? Actually pronounced Liren in Mandarin. And grew up in San Antonio. He actually can do a Texas accent really authentically, okay? Uh, if he wants to just throw that out. And he has the perfect podcasting voice, actually, thinking back on it. He, he was before his time, okay? And... Oftentimes, if he had to use his name at a restaurant, oh, yeah, table for four, what's the name? He would say Larry, and they go, okay, Larry, right? And almost everywhere he goes, he's suddenly Larry. And he just stopped fighting it, you know? His legal name is still not Larry. It has never been Larry, but, uh, but that's part of trying to integrate, okay? So think about actors. They have stage names, right? Why don't they keep their family names? Is it? It's not for privacy reasons, right? They change their names to a stage name, which is their legal name. Their checks are in that name. Like Tom Cruise is not Tom Cruise, right? But some people stick with it. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger is Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's not a stage name. That's his real Austrian name, as far as I know, right? I'm sure an agent at some point told him, you know, you really got to change that name. No one's going to be able to spell it or pronounce it. But he kept to his guns. Well, he's got guns, you know, but I'm saying... He held on to his principles and kept his name. Right. All right. So, House of Song and Flight. That is me. Okay. So, I'm going to drop the nickname of Dr. C and I'm going to stick with Dr. Chuang. And even if students have trouble with it, that's okay. Struggle with it. You don't have to pronounce it the Mandarin way or the Taiwanese name. Taiwanese way, just try i want people to just try okay it's not so much about the language it's really about my cultural roots it's about one's identity and let's talk about that a lot of this has to do with what it means to be an american right is being an american defined by ethnicity is it defined by skin color or is it defined by ideology right having certain ideals. So, something to think about.
All right, let's pivot up and talk about identity. I promised that 20 minutes has passed and we're going to talk a little bit about psychology. Now, I remember doing some cultural diversity workshops at nonprofit agencies in Houston back in the day. And we would talk about one way of addressing cultural diversities, simply our, how we identify ourselves, not just our names, but you know, try to answer the question and make a list of how you would describe yourself. The question is, who am I? Right? Some people start to write down roles. I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm an employee of this college. Right? Credentials. But these are generally roles that define themselves as part of some group. I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, right? I'm a Libertarian. Some people answer the question that way. Some other people answer the question, who am I, in terms of personality traits. Like, I'm funny, I'm honest, I'm sincere, I'm easygoing, right? Personality traits. And oftentimes people who come from collectivistic, group-oriented cultures tend to define themselves as part of that group, use roles. And those who are more Western in America, come from more individualized cultures, tend to think of themselves based on personality traits. It's kind of an interesting dynamic there. So in some multicultural psychology textbooks, or almost all of them, you'll come across and even in Intro to Psych, you'll come across a subject. And there, there are two different subjects, but they kind of overlap. And, and it's, it's called acculturative stress. Okay, Acculturative stress is the idea that people tend to suffer a lot of mental anxiety and stress when trying to adapt to a new environment. So think about like immigrants from anywhere coming to the United States and then having children and grandchildren. So look for authors. Uh, these bro the brothers, the psychologists, Daryl Wing Sue and Stanley Sue. A couple of my mentors back in the day when we were in Houston, trying to create a counseling center for Asian Americans. Uh, they were heavily involved, as well as uh, Dr. Cross and others. Um, pick up a multicultural psychology book in your library. You'll find a lot of these writers. Okay, so. The stress we feel when adopting to a culture can actually affect all of us at some level. So when we think about this theory called racial identity development, it's the idea that a person of color has to go through various stages of psychological development when you're in a majority culture that's different from yourself. So we're going to use America as an example, but this could happen anywhere. So think of these as uh, sort of phases, stages of development, in no particular order, but one could be in at any given moment. So think about it for yourself. If you're a person living anywhere, obviously, you know, which stage do you think you belong to? So for example, one of the stages is called assimilation. Right? This is where a person sees themselves as part of the dominant culture. And whatever their cultural roots are, if it's especially different from the dominant culture, then they reject it, right? So that would be, for example, a Taiwanese person living in America who goes by a name like Jack and puts down Asian people, makes fun of people with accents, um, doesn't like anything about Asian food, right? 
um, that would be an assimilated person. Or in America, it could be most white people are assimilated. They're part of the dominant culture. They don't think anything of it, right? Uh, but in a sense, they've also rejected their own cultural roots because every white person in America has roots somewhere probably in Europe, some part of Europe, right? At some point in their ancestry, unless you're talking about Native Americans who are, who are Native, okay? So in a sense, if you're a third generation, you know, I used to do this exercise in the classroom where I asked students, well, where are you from? Do the best you can. And a lot of students that we would call Caucasian or white would say, well, I think I'm part German and part Irish and part this and part that. And some students, frankly, just said Texas, and I don't know. But most of the students who are Hispanic know exactly where they're from. Or they can pinpoint a place. Oh, I'm from this city in Mexico. Or I'm from Central America. Or I'm from Vladivostok, Russia. That's actually a friend of mine who lives there, who's from there, right? I can say, well, I'm from Taiwan, okay? Um, but it's interesting that it's usually the Caucasian students, Caucasian people who struggle with that question because they're completely assimilated. They don't see themselves as anything other than American. Not a good or bad thing, right? it just is. Then there's the immersion phase where someone is immersed deeply a part of their root culture and they reject their dominant culture. Okay, It's like someone who's very Irish, Right? They have a lot of Irish traditions, uh, food-wise, maybe even language-wise. could be someone who's Asian who uh, prefers to live close to Chinatown or uh, part of town was predominantly Asian, so they can have easy access to food and speak the native language a lot. Right, But this is someone who's also actively rejecting the dominant culture that they're in. They're not really trying hard to integrate to assimilate into the larger society, right? So you see how these are diametrically opposed, right? Then you have people who are in the marginal phase. And being marginal means, and, and just imagine, right, margins of a piece of paper is on the edge. A person who feels like they don't quite belong to either side. So I can see this happening with second generations growing up in America, where they're adopting a lot of the dominant culture their language and English is better than their parents, right? Their cultural identity is shifting. Maybe their religious identity is shifting. Parents feel like the kid is losing their whateverness, Taiwaneseness, for example, becoming acting very white, as they would say, right? Um, but yet that kid at school doesn't fit in, okay? Um, so they don't quite fit in with the... Uh, I felt a little bit of this in my undergrad years, right? There are Asian Students Association, mainly with recently arrived foreign students. And I'm not one of those. Couldn't really fit in with the so-called popular crowd of the white folks, right? Didn't quite fit in there, looked different. And so it's interesting that most of my friends happen to be Asian Americans, Korean and Taiwanese, not all, okay, just my core group that I met in college and I grew up with, they happened to come over to the States around the same time, around middle school age. 
So we have this sort of cultural misfit, you know, we're, we're a bit of the old culture and also a bit of the new culture, not quite like our parents, not quite like our peers. So I think we sort of hung out together because we were in that marginal phase. Then lastly, there's integration. And integration means that you own both parts, your roots, you're not, you're not ashamed of it, you're proud of it, you celebrate it, you don't hide it, but you're also integrated into larger society, right? You root for Dallas Cowboys or the Seattle Seahawks, you root for your team, very American thing to do, you're a sports fan, right? You like American food, go get some chicken fried steak, right? Then on weekends you... Uh, make uh, instant noodles <laughs> okay I'm um, using food as an example a lot so this is considered by psychologists being the most healthy level of adaptation to be because the other three presents more of an acculturative stress more of a struggle okay all right well living in America you know it's, it's interesting right being an American and being an American of Asian descent is interesting we're a nation of immigrants there's so many different waves of immigration from the older european waves to the newer asian waves of immigration right and we're all blended together here trying to uh, get along right? sometimes i feel like when I when we lived in Thailand and Taiwan and visited Malaysia long you know for several months at a time we felt like wow we really just kind of belonged there but I'm sure we actually lived there for years even in Thailand we we still knew we were outsiders right we knew that perhaps locals might discriminate against us or see us a little bit differently or just make assumptions right it's like you've been here how long and you still don't speak Thai <laughs> right so it's a love and hate thing living in the United States is difficult always have to be guarded especially in this political environment right COVID-19 some people are hating on Asian looking people so just never know you know just have to sort of have to have eyes behind your your back always have to be mentally prepared if someone's going to look at you the wrong way how are you going to deal with it okay and luckily, most of the time, I don't have to deal with anything. But the thought is there. Okay. So anyway, this podcast is about my own cultural identity development, evolution. And the realization that if I tell my students to, well, I'm not really telling them to, but thinking about you know the purpose of nicknames, of altering one's name to fit into larger society, is that really the right thing to do? Does the larger society have some responsibility to help us become part of the whole by accepting the fact that our origins are from somewhere different than what they're used to? Okay. And yeah, the name Jack has made it really easy for me and for the people around me to assimilate into American life. And I am American, right? And part of me not using my real name for a while on podcasts was I want people to not know my ethnicity. Right? And I don't 
the more information you have about someone the more judgments you can make about them but if you don't even know if you didn't even know my racial background my ethnic background then then it's kind of puzzlesome right one's sex and one's ethnicity are the two categories we usually want to know about any given person and and if that's all you knew about any given person all sorts of ideas and preconceived notions and assumptions good and bad accurate or inaccurate come up and we form judgments we make attributions about what kind of person that would be what kind of status they have in society so it's kind of my imagination just to do a podcast in this sort of anonymous way and just let people guess. So they wouldn't know my political views. They wouldn't know my, you know, my cultural idea. But it's such a part of me that I can't avoid it. I want to talk about my experiences as being an Asian American, living in Asia, and what it feels like to be an outsider sometimes. Right? Okay, so I'm going to wrap this up. I don't know if this made any sense to you whatsoever, but maybe you've had this kind of struggle before. But if you're Indonesian, living in Indonesia, and you're part of the majority group, then think about what, what, which of those phases you're in, right? But if you're first-generation immigrant, foreign student to America, what's life for you right now? Is it challenging? Is it easy to fit in? Do you struggle with your name? When you introduce yourself, do you just not look forward to training people around you on how to say your name? I know I've always had to do that, especially over the phone. I had to come up with a little scheme to spell my name out the easiest way possible because there's a Vietnamese name that sounds just like my name, Trong, spelled T-R-O-U-N-G, I think. Or U-O-N-G, Truong. So there are a lot of Vietnamese people in Texas. So once I say my name Truong, I can see people writing if I'm in person with someone back in the day, pre-COVID. Not these days. I would see their pen and I see them start writing T-R. No, 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 C-H. So when I'm speaking over the phone, I have to spell my name out. I say, okay, my name is Truong. It's C-H like Charlie. U-A-N like Nancy. G like George. And I've been using that for years until I come up with another way. But I'm going to keep using that because I'm not Dr. C anymore. Okay? I am House of Song and Flight. Damn, I should have really named my podcast that. House of Song and Flight. That should be my podcast title. But thanks for listening, and goodbye to Dr. C. This is... Yongxiang Chuang. Take it easy, everybody.